Welcome to Securing Our Future, a podcast exploring how commercial and national security sectors work together to accelerate innovation. In each episode, we sit down with industry leaders, government officials, leading academics, and more to delve into the latest advancements and challenges in all areas related to our nation's future. This podcast is a publication of New North Ventures. Join us as we engage in insightful conversations with experts from the private and public sectors. To stay updated on the latest episodes and receive additional resources, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at securingourfuture.us. Welcome, David, to the podcast. Hey, Jeremy. Great to chat. Hey, it's been fun getting to know you over the couple years. I met at a conference. It was around threats and and cyber stuff. But uh, you just finished up a, a tour as CEO of a company called Niso. So why don't you tell us about your time there, what they were up to, and, and we'll dig into your past and uh, a little bit on, on cyber and, uh, and the landscape. Sounds great. Yeah, I just had a great three and a half year running ESOS. I stepped out in December, started thinking about what's next. But ESOS, the company's branded as the managed intelligence company, but it really looked at how we took the, the intelligence process and delivered that at scale, hence the managed service, truly helped pro- our clients, both in you know public and private sector, deal with the, the new threats, some call cyber safety um, on the internet. So disinformation, threats online that can materialize in the in the physical world, fraud, uh, and really being able to be an extension of their team that can bring the intelligence process to life, specific to the organization that, that too many organizations too much when you're looking at intelligence, particularly in the commercial world, you have to decide between some things pre-written that I actually argue isn't intelligence that you try to bring to life uh, or something that was too expensive or too hard to, to build and deliver at, at scale for your organization. I think that's what we really uh, focus on solving and did some, you know, got to work with some really amazing clients, work on some really hard problems and and build a, a pretty a pretty sane business with an awesome team. And you've always lived at this intersection of managed services, product, whether it was at Rapid7 or Fidelis. I think you you had some time at General Electric's and some of their security program. Talk about how you've thought of the practice of information, uh, cyber security, and, and that transition of between managed services and product. Everybody tries to turn them into products. Is that a nirvana that, that we're still trying to find, or is it a place where we just won't get to, and there's a human component that will always be part of that service delivery? It's so I think it's a great question. I I'll, I'll let me hit the managed service question, and then I'll come back to the some of the, the history. But you know, I, one of the things, if you I I started as um, I started my career at General Electric, and and then I you know went into the product space. And if you had told me ten years ago that I'd have run you know three managed services businesses, I'd have probably laughed you out of the room because uh, I'd have gone, man, for SaaS, the variable cost of software is zero, and 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 like people, like wow, I got to work with people, and that's you know, that, that brutal. Uh, and ironically, I think that's the things that I found that I love about it are one is, uh, is actually the, the people side of the business that building and growing uh, and creating great teams and impact people's careers is, is amazingly fulfilling and is as fulfilling as the strategic side. Uh, but I think when you look at the problem sets, uh, particularly in cybersecurity and intelligence, that the there are just so few organizations that can invest the the amount of resources, not just dollars, but uh, the infrastructure necessary to really hit maturity uh, in those uh, in those spaces. And so, I think that you know, managed services where you're putting people, process, and technology together really has um, an opportunity to, to solve problems in the market that uh, people just can't solve with products on their own. And so, when you look at from the, the typical bell curve of, of adoption from people who are uh, immature through through 
simplifying it to early maturity through uh, through mature. There's just very few companies in in uh, out there that have achieved maturity uh, in cybersecurity or intelligence, and I think that's been really exciting to help them address problems that they couldn't by bringing productized service of people, process, and technology. There's a lot of entrepreneurs who will start off in professional services, then look at building a product around that. As a venture capitalist myself, I, I, I see that a lot of, hey, yeah, this is a product. And, and you poke at it a couple of times and you realize, oh, that's actually you know, relatively human powered. When you look at organizations who say that they're product based and they're actually either managed services or they're professional services, even on the further end of the spectrum, how do you look at those companies and organizations to, to find out like what what's the right what's the right way to to assess whether or not a company is really a product capable company or or is it just not and is it just take a certain amount of scale where there's an ideal like ten people five people hundred people where you start to move into that product based delivery? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think that the there's some metrics that are probably the you know that are really important is. First of all, recurring revenue is is probably the while the gold standard in the investment world is also very telling here because it's uh, buyers won't commit to recurring things that that aren't actually recurring and recurring revenue in itself tends to be a a really good filter. The next part is is a, is a gross margin, as you can see where the the technology, you know, how much scale you're getting in the organization. That's one of the places that. You know, Adesos that was really able to to drive a, a, a huge change in how we looked at the resource required for the business and what our tech platform could really do. One, one of the things that I say a lot is that in a managed service, you want experts to just be experts. I think where a lot of the 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 traditional managed service providers got it wrong, um, or got it wrong for at least a number of problem sets, or, or I'll say I think really differently is that. Um, you know, I say if, if you ever have a company that that I'm leading that that you know ends up with a low cost workforce somewhere, we did something wrong. Uh, that what the way I look at at managed services, is you want to have a very small number of high impact people uh, that do the things that only humans can do that can make a huge impact for your clients, and then you know have the platform handle the those things. And gross margin is the ultimate measure of that. But I think when you're forward looking, if you're looking at you know joining a company or or a market opportunity or investing in a company that you, know, you may be doing things manually today uh, as part of your you know market learning or discovery process, but the ability to automate those and what is the roadmap and vision? Can you know can you take this discipline set of tasks and have a uh, you know, have an analyst or operator powered by a platform do that versus them just doing it manually. I think one of the greatest compliments that our our platform got was I think someone said that when they were in the government, it took them about a about a week to accomplish something. When they joined Nisos, it took about a day, and when we launched Checkshare Platform, it took about fifteen minutes. And when you hear those kind of stories, that tells you that you're that you're getting the you're getting the managed part, not the professional services part of the business as you think about those. So I think that's how I try to look at the business and the attributes of it that's really let you find that difference between a professional services company masquerading with marketing and a, and a true managed opportunity. No, that's cool. And that is magic when you can do something that is super expensive in terms of time, 40 hours, it's, it's then eight hours, and then it's 15 minutes, it's a quarter of an hour. I mean, that, that is, that's magic, right? Yes. Uh, cool. So switching gears a bit, uh, you've you've lived and been around information managed services, a bit security, and uh, you're fresh off fresh off veteran CEO now. How are you thinking about what's next? What's what are interesting trends that you see out in the world, and how are you thinking about 
digging into those, learning about those, and what are what are, uh, what are some observations that you have? You know, a whole month in. Yeah, so I think that you know, doing a CEO job search is fun. It's very different than that other thing I've experienced uh, in my career. And I think it's you know, the the key is I had drinks with a friend last week, and he said, "Fall in love with the." the sellers, not, not the property. And I think that it's, and I told him, I was like, actually, I want to fall in love with the sellers and the property. So I think the investors and their vision for the company, as well as the market opportunity are both really important. That's something that I was very fortunate uh, to work with Paladin and Columbia Capital at, uh, at Bezos and some of the, the more uh, sophisticated uh, investors in the DC market and uh, great partners. So uh, yeah, think a lot about that. Beyond there, you know, I think there's a lot of dynamics that you're thinking through is I, I I would say I'm probably more of a, a traditional, if there's such thing, a traditional cybersecurity guy. That yeah, you know, I've, I've had an amazing career. That you know, I started started my career out of out of college at General Electric, and and it's a much longer podcast, but ended up. It, had the very sexy title of manager information security, but was G didn't give anyone an officer title at the time that wasn't an officer of the company, uh, but was the CISO and you know, really led and built the, the global information security program. But also even back then, they would tell we started a NOSINT program in 1999 that uh, I think actually would be pretty cool for most companies today. So I've primarily worked in kind of information security and cybersecurity, but have touched a lot on intelligence uh, along the way. And obviously, ESOS last three and a few years leading a very focused um, intelligence uh, capability. And so I think a lot about the intersection of cybersecurity and intelligence, but also I think a lot about what are the, the other applications of intelligence. There's a lot of transformation. If we look at switching to more of the, the defense and government side of the equation, that uh, you know, geospatial intelligence is, was really one of the first places that the governments really leaned on commercial capabilities and changed how they thought about intelligence produced internally by the government versus in, versus commercial intelligence. And so I'm thinking a lot about you know, what opportunities in the cybersecurity space and, and what problems are, are unsolved and interesting there. And then also there's some ways to think differently about um, commercial applications uh, of intelligence. Uh, so those are some areas that got my brain going in a pretty exciting way. Oh, it's, it's neat. There's a whole dimension of trying to put together a lot of the information that's out there, taking open data, trying to tag it, annotate it. Um, attribution is one that's talked about. There's obviously a whole conversation about what's the next generation of, of MDR. So I imagine there's a lot of opportunity and it's a question of like, where best to lean in? Yep. Yeah. And it's easy. Yeah. The managed services side is interesting too, is I, I, I think three great roles in a row leading pretty amazing managed services teams and something I'm really good at, but I also have built technology and products. And so that's another sort of lens that, that I've been been thinking through and, and, and then obviously opportunities come along with it. So there's the strategic side of what's interesting, but then there's the, the tactical side of had a, had a conversation this past week that of a company that has some really interesting things, but is really struggling and the opportunity to, to what it presents of that this is something that probably should be pretty compelling and isn't achieving that right now. And an opportunity to dive in and fix that else kind of gets the gears going too. Oh, I know. And that's, as a former CEO, that's probably the best and worst part. It's like, oh, this one's a fixer-upper. I know exactly how to make this. I'm going to completely change the architecture of the house around, and we're going to like bolt in a foundation over here. We're going to switch out the go-to-market team, and the products needs to be upgraded like 100%. You can really fall in love with anything. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's cool. Looking at the the customer base, and, and you and in, in both at Nisos and, and at those before, both, both those organizations worked with government and government agencies and also with the, the, the private sector, commercial and industry. 
what was it like, especially in in in, in that type in those types of services, doing this dual use market? Did you focus on one, and then the other one was an add on? Were they both equal? How, how did the dynamics of of being a dual use company play out in both organizations? Yes, I think it's interesting. Is it, in both cases the the companies were built focused on the, the commercial private sector marketplace and and were ultimately, I'll say, pulled in to federal opportunities. And and, and on one hand, that's awesome. That the that's when anytime a a, a prospect pulls is a is an important learning signal for for whether you're the CEO or or sales or product. And and I think when one of the, the I think the cyber and, and the intelligence spaces are really fun spaces to work in federal because if you think about the, the US federal government is the largest networks in the world, most sensitive information in the world, the massive immense amounts of complexity, uh, and also incredibly sophisticated motive and motivated adversaries uh, looking to to attack and, and exploit them. And so the that problem set is both vast and, and not easy to solve. And so I think that that was a lot of fun. I think what's interesting is particularly we're talking from a venture funded side is that different investors look at those opportunities differently. That uh, uh, Fidelis, like we would, we were raising our series B and, and one of the investors was like, we'll give you, I can't the numbers, but whatever X on the commercial business. And then we're going to discount that to Y for the, the federal business. And you're like, they're buying skewed products with this is back in the days of before SaaS of you know special license and maintenance like they're buying the same SKUs they're buying the same maintenance <laughs> and uh, uh, and you know it's interesting that yeah there are I think there are some differences most people get their first painful learning lesson at some point that most that pretty much all federal contracts are cancelable for convenience uh, they have some you know they're, they're, it, it's not easy to do there's some you know hair for the government that comes with that but but that's you know one of the the consequences of of doing business with the government. Um, but uh, I think how people look at the businesses differently are, I think, sometimes is overrated. Yeah. Did you find that it was there were more similarities or, or more differences? You talk about convenience, obviously, SaaS, the whole idea is it's all recurring revenue. There's not really that much of a concept, although in practice, don't screw up. You also have, you might have issues with customers or investors of a company who, who think of the, the work in, especially cyber, it's is it a weapon? Is it not a weapon? What What other issues did you find? Yeah, so I I think that let me start with what I think is pretty similar is that whether you're selling to a Fortune 100 company or selling to a large government buyer, that it is complex enterprise selling. That's your how you engage, how you understand the problems, how you get the what choose your complex selling methodology, but how you you know find the decision makers of the different folks on the buying cycle, how you understand objections and, and address them. They're both very similar in their complexity and in their sales cycles. And and I think interesting is you know I think one of the things that maybe uh, government is even better is enterprises tend to be sticky once you've solved a problem. And I think the government tends to be you know very sticky. Where I think where they're different is when you get to Yes. So you get to the, I want to do this. The budgeting and procurement process is very different that most corporations have gotten away from the color of money that I remember early in my career that you had current year funds and future funds and OPEX and you know, funds are different CapEx funds. That has, you know, that 
budgets have simplified in commercial organizations and SAS has made, you know, just, uh, everything OPEX. It's, you know, the, that's definitely not the case in the government. So there's, there's a lot of different covers of money, how it can be used. And then it, so the, the procurement process is very different. And, and then the, the, how you reach uh, the end customer is very different that in, I think what, one of the frustrations that I personally had in, in dealing with information and cybersecurity in government is now everything is a billion dollar contract with a big prime. It's yeah, the, the 15 years ago, government cyber, there was lots of innovation, lots of little contracts. And, you know, it just makes sense as you, as things hit the scale that they need to defend one of those complex important networks in the world that uh, things become larger and how you work with primes and partners is, is very different. So I think when you get to, yes, I want to do this, that's where the commercial and government processes really fundamentally uh, diverge and, and how you manage that. Yeah, makes sense. Do you have a favorite market or are they both, they're both fine? They're both fine. I think it really depends on the problem that, that, you know, that you're solving that the, again, the, Solving the most complex problems at scale—it definitely happens in federal. Obviously, you were—you you spent did, did some amazing work in the, in the internet in the internet infrastructure space. That I, I like complex problems with non-obvious solutions, and and then and finding finding simple, scalable ways to solve them. And so, I think that if we were talking about something, I think what an example is, but a, a supply chain for office products. I don't think federal would be that exciting, but you're talking about how we have the intelligence needed to protect, you know, our people in our country, or how we, you know, uh, enable our systems to, to to drive the value that they need to in a in a secure and impactful way. Like, those are really fun problems. Yeah, and I can definitely relate with the large, open-ended, challenging questions. We used to joke at the internet. Was, you know, basically 300 people that knew exactly how it worked and there were 50 of them that worked that worked in the U.S. government. And so if you wanted to say no to federal, that was 50 people that you can hang out with. And we were, we were typically, when you get responses or when you get some sort of feedback, because that's, that's sometimes it's, uh, it's not as bi-directional probably as the commercial sectors, but uh, that feedback was, it was always amazing and very spot on. And, and it, it was a reminder every time that uh, there are world-class people who are working on those open-ended challenges and it made our product better. And so we were able to take some secret sauce and install that in what we were doing on, on the other side. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I remember early in my careers, my career early at General Electric was amazing. Like they just, I got to work on things big problems at scale that I never would have expected at that stage of my career. And what, one of my first jobs was was building the, the first G company-wide email backbone uh, that uh, we, had, we had decided uh, we were one of the earliest uh, places to, to choose a Microsoft Exchange deployment globally for the company. It was the largest one ever done at the time. And we did we used to do best practice sharing with uh, across a number of Fortune, the companies that we get together, whether there was a big farm or there was a big you know, manufacturer. Um, was, you know, there was a group that we get together. And uh, and as we were talking with Microsoft, they encouraged us to talk to the, the DOD. And I remember the attitude was like, that's just different. It's like an email connector is an email connector. SMTP volume doesn't really care if it's a .mil or a .gov or a .com email address. And, and we had a conversation with, with, the, with the DOD and how they're thinking about designing and scaling email systems that I thought was really interesting. And it was interesting to watch a number of people in the organization at the time be concerned that the feedback we were getting was was different or not applicable. Yeah, this is in the mid-90s. And I think it's learned a lot since then. Gotcha. 
So one thing I've always been impressed at, CEOs typically, they come in, they think product, they think all the hard stuff. And, and as time goes on, it becomes more and more about the team, about the culture, all about the softer side. And I'm, I'm curious to hear your reflections uh, to see if, 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 if you felt the same way. Yeah, it, yes. And I think I'll give a lot of credit to Rapid7 for, I, I joined Rapid7 as the GM of their managed services business. And the Rapid7 thinks a ton about culture and people. And, and they really changed how I thought about that problem set. And I think that's, I'll say that there's, as CEO, I think you can boil it down to two responsibilities. One is ensuring the business has the right strategy. And the second is creating an environment where people can perform at their best. Uh, and I, that uh, I've always loved the strategy and product side. I spent a good chunk of my career uh, being a practitioner and then leading product. Uh, but building and motivating teams uh, is something that I have just found. I, I just love. Uh, and I think of the one of the big differences between having been a GM, a number of business, and and a CEO is is you know ultimate accountability, uh, and that's for everything. But I think for for culture, uh, that no longer having to adjust to the culture of the, the the umbrella that you fit inside of, but owning it and sit the building the right team, how how you manage and motivate folks. One thing that I love about entrepreneurship is that you can have amazing opportunity, create amazing impact on people's careers in a much shorter time period than you can in a larger organization. But now the, the, the soft side is, actually, I don't even think of it as the soft side because I think it's it's a, it's the half, it's half the business with strategy, but that how you create the right culture and enable people to, to invest in. Particularly, you know, I joined ESOS June 1 of, of 2020 in the midst of the COVID chaos. There was, the economy was uncertain, jobs were uncertain, and, and we ended up building a great remote company and a great remote culture. We won awards for it from built in and some others. And I think that's something that um, kind of cherish and very much why it would be a part of my next CEO role. That's cool. Yeah. Corey Thomas at Rapid7, got to know him, Boston. And I was a CEO. Uh, he was a fellow Boston CEO person, just phenomenal company. The people there are great. And also doing the culture thing and, and being recognized for, for a place that people want to work. It's not everyone thinks of culture on this dimension where you have, you have to do a certain set of things, but there's multiple ways to succeed at it. And so everybody can bring their own sets of, of tools to build a culture that incentivizes the behavior you want. And, and it's a, it's really a cool thing when it works. Cool. David, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome to hear what you're up to. This will be probably the first of a two part series. We'll get to, we'll get to hear a little bit more about Nisos in our next episode. So excited you got to join us and look forward to seeing what you're going to be up to next. No, thank you. Enjoyed the conversation and look forward to continuing. Thanks for joining the Securing Our Future podcast brought to you by New North Ventures. Stay up to date on dual use innovation and augmented intelligence, digital authenticity and cyber integrity by subscribing to our newsletter at newnorthventures.com. Prior thinking is that you can either make a lot of money or do right for the country. Now we can and must do both as there are incredible opportunities for outsized returns from both a financial and national security perspective.